0: I am debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the unwise. And as, with as much as in me is, I am ready also to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed, manifested, revealed. In it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just Shall live by faith, isn't that amazing? And the next verse, I'm not going to speak it or preach it really, but it says, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth or the gospel in unrighteousness. I want you to know that the gospel is a glorious and wonderful reality that God has brought into the world. Before we look at the text, I want to just talk to you a little bit about Romans. It is amazing how we at go to the scripture and take texts out of context to say whatever we wanted to say. The Apostle Paul basically wrote only what most commentators believe is 13 letters. I happen to believe that he wrote 14 Because I really am persuaded that he wrote Hebrews as well. But as a rule, they believe in only 13. And of course, the longest of all of those letters is Romans. Now, amazingly, out of all the letters that Paul wrote, Romans is the only letter that he wrote to a church that he did not have a relationship with. And in truth, did nothing to plant it. Both Peter and Paul had visited the church in Rome, but in reality, they had nothing to do with its establishing or of its being planted. Many people have asked, I wonder how the church in Rome was planted. Well, the truth of the matter is nobody really knows, but we have a pretty good idea. Because on the day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us that there were believers there from Rome who were filled with the Holy Spirit and God led them back to Rome and they established the church. But now listen, those original members were all Jews. They established a Jewish community. The fact is that the church in Rome was in a ghetto, a Jewish ghetto, and most of the leadership in that church would have been Jews. But a terrible thing happened. There was a emperor His name was Claudius, hated the Jews. And so he decided one day it's time to get rid of them. There were 40,000 Jews in the city of Rome. He expelled them all. By the way, we read about two of them who came and that Paul had relationship, Aquila and Priscilla. You see it in Acts chapter 18 yourself. So we know that the church was established by Jews, but a change took place because after they vacated, the Gentiles that had entered into a relationship with God took over the leadership and uh, became part of the church in Rome. Now, I want to tell you that Rome was a city of debauchery. Man, if you read Romans 1, really, it's like reading the Sunday newspaper, I mean it was a a city filled with crime and debauchery. Did you know of the first 15 emperors in Rome, 14 of them were practicing homosexuals? We think homosexuality is a problem that we're facing in our day and time. But I want you to know it's been there from the very beginning of time. Don't think for a minute that God didn't know what's going on. Sodom and Gomorrah was wiped out a long time ago for the same practices. Sexual deviation, homosexuality. My sermon is not about homosexuality, so don't get worried. But I want you to know that it was a city of crime and vice, and misery. And once the Gentiles got in charge and took over, there were some things that changed within that community that made life very difficult. And then when Claudius finally died around forty-nine or whatever the date was, 54, some say, but who cares? I don't really care which year he died. He died in good riddance. But I want to tell you, he was followed by a very ominous fella called Nero. But he had enough brains and sense to understand that he must bring the Jews back to Rome because they took the money with them too. And so he invited them to come back to Rome and they did. But guess what happened when they got back to the church? The Gentiles were not too chuffed with having the Jews back. They didn't accept him. They didn't embrace them. They didn't give the leadership back to them. Now, how do I know this? Because you will see the things that Paul writes about in the book of Romans. When he begins right after chapter 12 and he's moving onwards talking about love and how love relates to one another and the submission to God. And he talks about the reality of Sabbath day keeping, special days and food offered to idols and all of that. That happens to be about Jews and Gentiles. And uh, they didn't well receive them, didn't like them at all. And so there were problems that existed in the church. Now, by the way, we don't believe that the letter was inspired by the problems that were there at all. Paul had a vision. He knew that he had been commissioned by God to plant churches across Europe. He had made his first headquarters in Jerusalem. His second headquarters was in Antioch. But Antioch was too far away from Spain. He tells us in Rome that he wanted to go to Spain. It is true that in those days, all roads led to Rome. And the best place in the world to establish that uh, headquarters in order to reach out into Spain would have been Rome. We can't prove that specifically, but that's the sort of consensus with people that have since. You've got to listen to some of the things people say. But I want to tell you that when he's writing to the church, he is wanting them to see the reality of what the gospel is all about. Now, by the way, there are basically three words that sort of explain what's happening in in the, the book of Romans. Faith, hope, and love. Basically, those three Factors; Those three realities will give you a division, an outline of what Romans is all about. In the first four chapters he's talking about faith, the importance of faith and the relationship with God. He moves on and begins to talk about hope, beginning with chapter 5. Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given unto us. He makes it very clear. Oh, by the way, in the entire book, it is in chapter 5 that the word love first appears. But he's not talking about the intimacy of our relationship with one another until he gets to chapter 13. 12 and onwards. I beseech you brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what is that good acceptable and perfect will of God God has a plan a purpose he wants us to love one another he had never met anybody there He wasn't looking to get anything from them. In fact, very clearly he says in the letter, right in the beginning, listen, I want to come and be a blessing to you and mutually receive blessing from you. I want us to be a blessing to one another. I want to come there and I want to impart a gift to you. I want God to use me in a miraculous way. But I have been prevented from coming But still, I'm seeking to come. I want to tell you, in those days, when letters were written, it was a very expensive practice. There was no public postal service like the USPS. I want to tell you something, the average letter in that day was between 20 and 200 words. And to write that letter was a very expensive process. And it cost a lot of money. And mostly it was an amanuensis who wrote the letter. And the person who would write it would normally be the one who would have to deliver it. And they would carry it with them wherever they went. So you know that everybody wanted to keep those letters short. And people seldom wrote them. The average letter of Paul was 1,300 words. Now do you know that from that period of the Roman Empire, they have found, archaeologists have found, 14,000 examples of letters of that day and time. But the longest of all of them, and the purest example, is the book of Romans. I want you to know that... uh, Seneca wrote a long one, 2,500 words. Cicero wrote the longest one that was written by any kind of secular person, 4,000 words. The book of Romans, 7,114 words. The longest letter they have in existence for us to read. But I want to tell you, did you notice what I said? Letter. Have you ever read a letter that has chapters and verses? You see, a major problem for us is the way we approach the book of Romans. Do You know that it was a French bishop that decided that he would put chapters in the Bible to help it make it a little easier. And I understand where they were coming from. It was an English bishop that decided to put verses in the Bible because that would help us to memorize it even better. And we have got a major problem today because of that. I'd like to just give you a little example. Do you know that there are many people that can quote Romans chapter 1, verse 16? But you cannot understand or begin to comprehend verse 16 without adding verse 17 because it is context. Now I want to give you an example. Do you know, I believe because of chapters and verses, we have created what I call the fifth gospel. We all the favorite little places that we like to read about that tickle our flesh and our fancy that we've got underlined in our Bible. That's what I call the fifth gospel. Oh, we all know John 3.16. How many of you, here, of you here tonight can quote John 3.16? Everybody, let me see your hands. I'm not going to ask you, so don't be afraid. You know, if give it this, you might ask me to. If I did, I hope that you could quote it. But now I want to ask you something else. Which of you can quote for me John chapter 3 verse 14 and 15? Anybody? Come on, I want you to know what does verse 14 and 15 say? Ah, you know. Yes, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up So that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How about verse 17? I didn't ask you, Miss Connie. (laughs) Now, the point is adequately made. What I'm trying to tell you is because of what we have done, we read the scripture without intent of understanding what the entire letter is about. I want you to know it is vitally important for us to comprehend the whole purpose of the letter, what he is doing, why he is doing it, because that is what helps us to comprehend what God is saying to us through those scriptures. Now this morning, brother Mike Panjo did an excellent job. He took the same text, and when he did, I nearly fell through the pew. Although I did expect it, brother, And a marvelous job he did. In verse 14, he clearly dealt with being a debtor. So I'm not going to touch on that at all. We are debtors. Debtors to deliver testimony to the power and the majesty of the gospel. And then he showed us very clearly that we have to be ready in verse 15. We must be ready to preach the gospel, wherever we go, we must be instant in season, out of season. It's vitally important. And then he touched on what I wanted to touch on, but I'm just going to add a little bit. I am not ashamed. What does it mean not to be ashamed? I want you to know that we are living in a time when many believers are ashamed of the gospel. Many of the young people who've been raised in the church we're to talk about the reality of the gospel because those who are around us at school and places that we hang out do not talk about the Bible and God. Do you know that there was a time that the Apostle Paul was ashamed of the gospel? He did not believe that it was the word of God. He believed that the gospel was in opposition to God's plan and God's kingdom. With every fiber of his being, he tried to annihilate the church and wipe it out. Because he was ashamed of everything it represented. I want you to know there were people that were ashamed of the gospel. Because of how Jesus, the savior of the Christian church, died. I want you to know in that day, it was only criminals. People that were murderers and killers that died by crucifixion. Roman citizens were never crucified. Their heads were lopped off like a Paul's was. And because of the crucifixion, because Jesus died upon a the cross, they were ashamed of what the gospel represented. I want you to know they were ashamed of the gospel because the majority of believers came from poor peasant-type backgrounds. Don't you think for a minute that fishermen were highly held on the totem pole of social acceptance? I want you to know that most of the people in that day and time looked at the people that were following Christ and they would say, as some of us would, only the poor, only the peasants, only those who have nothing, only those who are stupid, only those that don't have a brain are following Jesus. I want you to know in last century or the century before really, here in America, We had a major problem that caused a major problem with the gospel. I want you to know it was called the monkey trial. Now, if you haven't studied it, if you haven't gone into the background, I'm not going to try to tell it all to you. But at the end of that case, it was a court case in court. They found the gospel to be inadequate and to belong to people that didn't have much brains. Because they didn't accept scientific accounts of how the world was created by evolution. (laughs) Do you know that it is since the Scopes trial, that's what it was called. You can look it up, Scopes trial, monkey trial. Since then... All people who believe the Bible and believe the gospel are considered to be fundamentalists and fundamentalists are a threat to the state and to society. Do you know why people are ashamed? Because we don't know. That the gospel has the answer to the idiocracy of those scientists out there. That are telling us that they know how things came about. Have they never read John chapter 1 and verse 3. When it says that all things were created by him. And without him was not anything created that was created or made that was made. Have they forgotten what it says in Hebrews Very clearly what's in verse 3. I mean, I want you to know God spoke this universe into existence. Our God is an awesome, glorious, magnificent God. And I want you to know what he did then he can do now. Just like he spoke this universe into existence. He can speak newness and new creation into your being to make you a new creature. When Paul was saying, I am not ashamed, in that day and time, Anthony, the phrase of that day was not Heil Hitler. It was what? Caesar is Lord. And if you never said Caesar is Lord, they lopped off your head or crucified you or put you to death. If there was reason to be ashamed, it was just that. If a soldier walked past and demanded that you give homage to Caesar and declare that he is Lord, no Christian could do that because there is only one Lord and his name is Jesus. There is only one Lord. His name is Jesus and we are not ashamed of him because it is he that gives us life And life more abundantly. It's his power and his majesty that brings hope into our hearts. It is his glory and majesty that brought us victory over death. I want you to know how God has brought life and immortality to bear upon every human being that will believe him. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. How God came into this world and he lived a life. They couldn't find anything wrong with his character or his life. They couldn't put a finger. He had a spotless life. And he had every right to call 10,000 angels if he liked. But instead, he chose to die on behalf of even those that hated him. Romans tells us something wonderful. In chapter 5 and verse 8, what does it say? God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to know, I am not ashamed. Fratello Giuseppe, I'm not ashamed, that's right. I want everybody to know. You can call me to crack in my skull or with a hole in my head. I thank God that through that hole, the gospel of Jesus Christ shone in and brought me life and life more abundantly. I tell you, it is the fool that saith in his heart, no God for me. I want to ask you, It's another thing the verse tells us. And you're going to say, brother, we're moving rather slow. You're right. The time's up. I'll quit. We don't have to go on all the time. I'd sure like to, but there's too much material. But I want you to see the source of the gospel. It wasn't Christendom. It wasn't Christianity. The source of the gospel is not Paul. It was not the disciples. I want you to know the source of the gospel is God. Listen, this gospel emanated from God in his plans and purposes. It is good news. It is a wonderful newscast that is telling us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I want you to know God is the source. There is no man alive that cares about another soul like God does. The psalmist said, no man cared for my soul. But I want you to know God cares. God had a plan. God is the source. I want you to take the time if you can take it and go through chapter 1, 2, and 3. And I want you to see all the phrases that end with, of God. Amen. Of God. In chapter 1, 12 times. In chapter 2, 7 times. In chapter 3, 9 times. I'm just talking about the first three chapters. Now, what What do I mean? Righteousness of God, wrath of God, goodness of God, love of God. What is it telling us? That God is the source (laughs) of God. What am I going to do? Of God, hallelujah. Let me tell you something. What is going to happen to me? Of God, hallelujah. You do not have to be afraid. It's of God. God is the source. I want to tell you something. This Bible, oh, it's my friend. I love this word. But this Bible didn't save me. You see, we have a terrible sort of thing that goes on even in the church. I really believe with all of my heart that much of the church is is crippled by bibliography. You know what it means? We worship a book. <laughs> in some homes you can't put a coffee cup on top of a Bible. They'll kill you. That's right. That's right. But they didn't wipe the dust off it for the, over the last five years. If you took a dust cloth, you could write your name in that Bible. They don't worry about the dust settling on it. Let me just tell you something. You know they talk about Christians and Muslims, and Jews, and they say we are people of the book, and I know what they're saying is true, but I'm not a people of the book, no book gave me life, Muslims are people of the book, Jews are people of the book, they have never accepted the one that the book tells us about, I'm in relationship to the God of the book. Hallelujah. My confidence, my worship is given to the God of the book and to the son of that God. Somebody's going to say, oh, brother, that sounds almost like heresy to me. Believe that if you like. But I tell you, I love that book, but I'm in love with Jesus. Listen, you can take that book and you can burn it. But what is in my heart, you can never burn. What Jesus has implanted in us can never be burnt. I want you to know how God is an awe-inspiring God. There is nothing that he cannot do. This is a glorious book. But don't have a relationship with the book When you don't have a relationship with the God of the book. I want to tell you the nature of the gospel. What is it? It is, notice what he said. For in it is the power of God. You know, power is one of Paul's favorite words. He loves those words. Do you know that the word for power, dunamis, appears by Paul's usage for almost one third of biblical usage he believed in the power and the majesty of our God and by the way the power that he's talking about is a power that was manifested in the resurrection of Jesus and by that power he was declared to be Lord of all and empowered to bring Into the sphere of our lives The power and the majesty of the cross Don't look at your size Don't look at your education Don't look at what you have And what you don't have I want you to know the gospel The power of the gospel Is adequate for every situation That you face The power of the gospel breaks strongholds. The power of the gospel frees those who are bound by sin and wickedness. The power of the gospel brings new hope and vitality. The power of the gospel dispenses the life that comes and flows from the very person of God. Because verse 4 of John chapter 1 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness overcame it not I want you to know our God wants to empower our lives our God wants us to expect victory, experience in all of its glory and majesty And I want you to know the son of God for the purpose of bestowing power on us has overcome the wicked one has overcome everything that was brought against him There is no power. There is no force. We sang it tonight. That can even begin to hold a candle to the great I am. Throughout Paul's writings, he lays stress on the power of Christ. The power, the majesty of the Christ. Why is it that we've become, I don't know what it is, so... So insignificant, why is it that we have become so slow to comprehend that in Christ is all the power that we need to be the overcomers that God has called us to be? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. What is its purpose? Unto salvation. I love that word. And here on salvation we can spend a long time. But some of you are tired. It's been a long convention. And so I'm going to wrap it up with this point. I told you this morning or this afternoon that there are only 13 appearances in all the book of Romans of the word salvation. Saved or salvation. The first one is found in John chapter one, rather, Romans chapter one and verse 16. The last one is found in Romans chapter 13 and verse 12, and where it very clearly tells us that we are waiting for the salvation, that the salvation we are waiting for is nearer now than when we believed. I want to tell you of the 13 times it appears in Romans. It has three different tenses. Salvation is past. We have been saved. Salvation is present. We are being saved. Salvation is future. We shall be saved. I want you to know that the book of Romans tells us very clearly that we have been saved in the past from the penalty of sin. Sin no longer has, remember what he said? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God by salvation that took place in the past has justified us and removed from us the penalty of sin. And justification is the theological term that tells us what he has accomplished in our life. It is a forensic term. It is a declaration God has declared that we are justified as though we have never sinned. Secondly, we are presently being saved. And I want you to know that as we are being saved... God is removing from our lives the power of sin. Do you see? Listen to me. In the past, our lives were surrendered to sin, it dominated us. We were slaves of sin, slaves of unrighteousness. But through the theological process of sanctification, the biblical requirement of what comes by faith. Now, all of these things, do you notice? How we qualify it in verse 17, that all of this is from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This doesn't have to do with our works and our ability. It has to do with our ability to believe, to trust God. By faith, the sanctification process is taking place in our lives. God is removing us from the power of sin. He is removing the power of sin over our lives so that we can no longer be slaves to sin, but slaves unto righteousness because God wants us to live lives that glorify His name and speak of holiness. I want you to know there are many in the church who say because we've come under grace, Somebody said to me yesterday, you know they've got that hyper-grace message? (laughs) Listen to me. I believe in grace with every fiber of my being. I'd be an idiot if I didn't. But what hyper-grace means is it doesn't matter if I sin. It doesn't matter how wickedly I live. It doesn't matter how wicked my life is. God loves me and accepts me and it doesn't matter. It does matter. God didn't save us so that we can continue to live in sin and allow for sin to dominate us. I am not talking about sinless perfection. Because if that's what you believe, that definitely is not what I'm talking about. Sanctification is both crisis and process. You have a faith experience. And then we grow progressively into an intimate relationship with God as he is removing the power of sin from our lives. Sin is, I mean, salvation is future. We shall be saved. And when that day comes and we stand before God, he will remove the presence of sin from our lives and our existence forever. There is no sin that can ever I want you to know the presence of sin will be removed, eradicated forever. That's what the future holds. I want you to know theologically, that's called glorification. And I like what Dr. or rather Reverend David Pawson said. He said, one day when I stand before God in glorification, perfection, then I'm going to holler loud and clear. Once saved, always saved. Because then you've arrived, then you've received it, when you've been glorified, when he's removed the presence of sin, when the power and the majesty of our God has been accomplished in our lives, I want you to know we will never again be dominated or have sin hanging over our heads or condemnation or any of those things. I said, I'm going to shut it up, so I'm going to. Because I feel another preach coming. Father, help us to comprehend what the gospel is really all about. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God and to salvation to everyone that believeth. I pray tonight by the power of your Holy Spirit, That you will be the after teacher of your word. And that you will convict our hearts if we have been ashamed. That you will convict our hearts if perhaps we did not understand that there is only one source. It is not our pastor. It is not the Roman Catholic Church. It is not the Pentecostal Church. It is not Christendom. It is not even the Bible. It is only God, our Father, it is Jesus, it is the power and the majesty of a risen Savior. Father, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will make us see that you have removed from us the penalty of sin, that you're in the process of removing the power of sin from our lives, that you have a plan and a purpose for the future, that we have to hold on, that we have to persevere, that we have to strive To enter into that which you have prepared for us. And I pray that you will give us victory over ourselves. That you will convict us of our foolish and rebellious lives. And that you will turn our lives around and empower us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come Lord and have your way. In Jesus name while every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Tell me, beloved, have you been ashamed? Tell me, young person, are you ashamed? ashamed. Do you struggle with what it means to be a Christian? Tell me, do you understand the power of the gospel to set you free from bondage and sin, to break the shackles of that which has got you bound? Do you know that the gospel is powerful By the power and the majesty of the Holy Spirit, God can set you free from whatever has you bound. God has a purpose in your life. God is in the process of perfecting your life, of conforming you to the image of His Son, of making you like Jesus. Perhaps you've been living on the fringes for many years but now God is speaking to your heart tonight that you want to surrender it all to Jesus. I want to ask while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if there is anybody to whom God has spoken tonight, that you will put up your hand and say, Brother Mike, see my hand. God has spoken to me tonight. I want to God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. Please listen to me. You're not doing this for me. I'm not keeping a book. I'm not keeping a record. God's keeping the record. God loves you. He cares for you. He wants you to respond to him. This word didn't come forth because of me. It came forth because of him. Yes, I see that hand. God bless you, please. Is there anybody else? Listen, God is speaking right now. If you will respond to him, tonight you can have the victory that you so desperately have been seeking. Tonight you can enter into a new phase of your relationship with God. Tonight your whole salvation experience can take a whole new frame of reference. Is there anybody else who will raise their hand and say, Brother Mike, see my hand. God bless your hand.